Well, good afternoon, everyone. It has been a strange day, uh, and I have to tell you that this has been uh, the strangest sermon preparation day that I think I've ever had in 36 years of ministry. Uh, I started off with a message already prepared, and then it looked like the plans were to go to a very kid-friendly message, uh, and then at the last minute, the lights were on, and PK workers said that they were available to take the kids, so then I'm stuck with a message here for fourth graders, um, and the word of that came within the last hour before we started here, so I really have no idea what's going to come out here. Uh, there's, it's just, it's all over the place, and let's just, let's just see what God, what God does. Um, let me read our text, Matthew chapter 4, I'm going to begin in verse 12, and read down through verse 17. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Lord, would you, would you please help us this afternoon? This is, this is a strange day, and it's unusual conditions, and... There are things that can so easily distract, but Lord, there are truths here that are so very precious and so very important that, Father, we need to have ears to hear them and hearts to receive them, and only you can give those ears. Only you can mold those hearts. And so we look to you, Father, in our weakness, in our distraction. We look to you and to your spirit to help us, to guide us, to teach us, to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Like who knows how many of you here in this room this afternoon, on Friday afternoon, I don't know exactly what time it was, but the lights went out. And our home entered into a kind of blackout mode for about the next 24 hours. Kind of a strange experience. We had a couple of candles and a flashlight, but not much for light in our house. And, and as the evening descended on us, the darkness in the house got deeper and thicker and and it was a matter of time, not that long of time, when, well, after reading for a little bit with a flashlight, uh, we decided enough reading for now, turned the flashlight off, and Galen's sitting in her chair, and I'm sitting in my chair, and I am seeing less and less of her. 
as the darkness thickens, as the darkness settles in. We, we could have painted a sign in that moment and pasted it or posted it on our front door, reading simply, waiting for light. Waiting for light. Waiting for light. As I reflected on that over the last couple of days, it seems to me like it's a pretty good description of our world. Waiting for light. Have you noticed that it's dark out there? And I'm not not talking about Darkness caused by the setting of the sun or the dimming of the light bulbs or, or the obscuring of the moon. I'm talking about a different kind of darkness, a, a darkness of the soul, a darkness of the mind, a, a darkness of the spirit, a darkness of the world. The, the world is in a similar state waiting for light. This goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Genesis 1 and 2, the world is made and it's this brilliant display of light. There is light everywhere. There is glory everywhere. There's majesty and beauty and color everywhere. And then Genesis 3 hits and nighttime falls. The planet in a moment of time with Adam and Eve's sin, in a moment of time, darkness descended. And, and a kingdom of darkness invaded planet earth and really has been largely controlling and dominating and tyrannizing humanity ever since. The world has been waiting for light. From Genesis 3 all the way till Matthew 4. The world was waiting for light. But then Matthew 4 happens. And the light dawns. The light has come. A great light is seen by people dwelling in darkness. It is the kingdom of light. It is the king of light. It is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says in verse 17, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The light has dawned. It is that kingdom that we're going to hear about time and time again as we work our way through Matthew. This afternoon, I want to make sure that we understand a little bit of what that kingdom is, a little bit of when that kingdom dawned, and then a little bit of how to make sure that we have entered into that kingdom and are a part of that kingdom. Let me summarize it like this. The kingdom of heaven has dawned. The kingdom of heaven has dawned and we must all turn to and follow the light. The kingdom of heaven has dawned and we must all turn to and follow the light. In this text, in verse verse 16, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Those dwelling in the region and in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. There are a few things so wonderful as dawn when 
The darkness and blackness of night is, is pierced with the, the first peak of the sun, piercing the darkness as, as the sun wakes up in the morning and, and looks up over the eastern horizon and, and, and looks in on us. It, it casts its light. Dawn happens. Morning has broken. And the prophet back in Isaiah, now quoted by Matthew, says that that is the picture, that is the image, that is the glory, that is the sunrise that Jesus is. The dawn has come. The kingdom of heaven has dawned. And we must all turn to and follow the light. Let me, let me try to answer three questions for you. What is the kingdom of heaven? And then, when did the kingdom of heaven dawn? And then, how do we get in? Right, those three questions. First of all, question number one, what is the kingdom of heaven? I, I am sure that you know already that God has always been king. There has never been a time when God was not king. He is by His very nature, by His very essence, who He is. He is God the King. He is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He has always been on the throne. He has always been sovereign. And in His sovereignty and in His kingship, He made planet earth. And He wanted planet earth to be a, a small a global expression of His kingdom. And so He made us and He made Adam and Eve and He intended that Adam and Eve would rule over this and human beings would have dominion over the earth. Remember that in Genesis chapter 1. And, and so there was this glorious uh, paradise that God made so that His kingdom could be made visible on a planet and He gave to Adam and Eve this role of having dominion and then Genesis 3 happens. This alien king, this king of darkness, this prince of darkness named Satan finds his way into the kingdom, finds his way onto planet earth and, and he seduces and, and he tempts Adam and Eve, and in doing so, he establishes his kingdom in their hearts. And he, and he, he usurps the throne, so to speak. God is still on the throne, but God, for mysterious reasons known only to him, has allowed this planet to be taken over for a time by a king of darkness. But God made a promise. God made a promise that another king would come. The Messiah king would come. And this Messiah king who would be God and man together in one person, he would fix what Adam broke. The first Adam ruined it all. The last Adam Jesus Christ came and He is restoring all things. And He is establishing, He has established the kingdom of heaven. And this kingdom of heaven is now the counterinsurgency. It's the counter-revolution. It is now pushing back the kingdom of darkness. It is pushing out the kingdom of darkness. And step by step and inch by inch and heart by heart, Jesus Christ is reigning over more and more people, more and more 
powers, more and more dominions. He is Lord of all and he will reign until everything is made his footstool. This is the kingdom of God. God enthroning his son as the God-man king to rule and to spread the light of truth and beauty and forgiveness and justice and love throughout the world. So, question number two. When did the kingdom of heaven dawn? Verses 12 through 17 answer that for us. It was in the appearance of Jesus. When Jesus came to earth, the light dawned. In verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is the dawn. And in his, in his coming, we see kingdom power. Look down at verses uh, 23 through 20 and 24. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. What's going on here? This is, this is King Jesus manifesting his kingdom authority. This is Jesus, King Jesus, looking at sickness and saying, I rule over you, be gone. This, this is Jesus looking at affliction, saying, I rule over you, be gone. Over disease, be gone. Over pains, be gone. He delivers people from demons. He heals epileptics and paralytics. He exercises his kingdom authority over all creation. You read on in Matthew, he, he stills storms. He raises the dead. Everything is subject to Jesus. He is the king. And this is the dawning of the kingdom. This is, this is Jesus breaking in. This is King Jesus coming and saying, I am here and things are going to be different from now on. The darkness is going to be dispelled. The darkness is going to be banished. The kingdom has dawned. Now sometimes we wonder, where the light is. Sometimes we wonder what happened to the dawn. I need to remind my own heart as I remind yours this afternoon that it was a dawning, right? You know what a dawn is. It's just the beginning of the day. It's not the full high noon day. The, the high noon glory, the blazing sun of the glorious kingdom of God. That is yet to come, but the dawning has come. The, the beginnings of this, so that Christ and His truth and His glory and His gospel and His forgiveness are happening. They are spreading out. Lives are getting changed. People are getting transformed. Sins are getting forgiven. Yes, sicknesses are getting healed. Wonderful things are happening all over the world. Christianity, the faith of Christ, the gospel of Christ is spreading everywhere. But it's, it's not full blazing noonday yet. We're somewhere in mid-morning. I hope it's close to noonday. 
But we're somewhere between dawn and noonday. We're, we're somewhere between that first peaking of the sun over the horizon and that blazing radiance of the sun's glory. We're somewhere in between there. There's a, with the kingdom of God, there is, as theologians love to say, there is a now and a not yet to it. There are parts of it that we experience now. There are elements of it that are with us right now. We enjoy them. We see them. We glory in them. We rejoice in them. But then there's lots that's not yet. And we have to wait for it. It's coming. That's why we pray, Thy kingdom come. It's coming. It's coming. But it's not yet. But there is something now, and it's real. It's real. The King has come. The kingdom of God has begun. The kingdom of heaven is in existence right now and real light is happening. And In the dawning kingdom, there is light, light for the sightless. There is strength for the powerless in this kingdom of God, in this kingdom of heaven, in this kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ who is all wise and, and all powerful and all good. There is wisdom for the clueless. There is direction for the aimless. There is mission for the pointless. There is community for the homeless. There is fulfillment for the fruitless. There is future for the hopeless. There is identity for the nameless. There is justice for the defenseless. There is resurrection for the lifeless. There is Christ for the Christless. The kingdom has dawned. The kingdom has come and, and we are in it and we are enjoying it and we long for more of it. So, what is the kingdom of heaven? It is the establishment of God's counterinsurgency, God's kingdom by which He is driving back the forces of darkness. And when did this kingdom dawn? It, it dawned in the appearing of Jesus Christ the first time in His words and in His works, in His death and in His resurrection. And it leaves this question, how do we get in? How do we get in? How do we enter the kingdom of God? Look at chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. As we, as we look at this text, I believe it shows to us that there is, there is a threefold response to the 
gospel of the kingdom to the king himself, a threefold response that we need to make. We need to repent, we need to leave, and we need to follow. I, I, I see it like this in my imagination. I, I see there being this great gate going into the kingdom of God, and I'm approaching the gate, and, and on a sign just to the left of the gate, it says, repent. And then just to the right of the gate, it says, leave. And then over the header of the gate, it says, straight ahead, follow. Repent, leave, follow. Repent, leave, follow. What do we mean? Well, Jesus says, first of all, in verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You, you need to repent. And that's an old word. And in the modern era, it just sounds kind of archaic and kind of weird. But it's, it, it, it means that we need to do a radical turnabout in our life. Our lives from birth are going in one direction, away from God, towards sin, ruled by self, living in the kingdom of darkness. And God calls on us and says, you need to repent. You need to turn around and go in the other direction. Whereas once you loved sin and hated God, now you need to hate sin and love God. That's repentance. That's the life of repentance. I'm no longer going this direction. I'm no longer being led along by the nose by Satan. I'm no longer being worked in and overpowered by the prince of darkness, as Ephesians 2 puts it. I'm no longer his dupe. I turn and I go in the other direction. To the left of the gate, it says repent. And it's, it's not just a repentance that, that has no hope in it or no faith in it. It's a repentance mixed with faith. For as, a, as the account in, I think it's Mark, puts it, that we must repent for the forgiveness of our sins. In other words, we, we are believing that as we turn our back on our sins, we are turning to God in faith that He is going to forgive us of those sins through His Son's death on the cross, through the atonement of the cross. So we repent, we turn from our sins, we forsake our sins and go in this direction, believing in the forgiving grace of God. So we must repent. Then to the other side of the gate, it says, leave. Leave. What do I mean? Well, did you notice it in verses 20 and 22? Immediately, they, the disciples, left their nets and followed him. And again in verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Part of repentance and faith that leads you into the kingdom is a leaving of your former life is a leaving. This is a hard saying of Christ. This is not an easy thing here, folks. Don't, don't treat this lightly. 
This is sobering. Jesus once said in Luke 14, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's another way of saying you need to leave everything in order to follow me. He is not saying that we can't have things. He is saying that things can't have us. He is saying that we can no longer be attached in the same way we once were to things, to possessions, to career, to independence, to autonomy, not even to father and mother, not even to children. We love and honor father and mother. We love our children and care for our children. But Jesus is saying, I must be first. I must be on the throne. I must be Lord. And you must be willing to leave if what you own, if what you have, even if your loved ones despise you for your faith, you must still leave and follow me. Oh, that's a hard saying. But let's not water down the teachings of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is His Word to us. And I know it raises questions. Does that mean I have to sell everything that I have? No. But it does mean that you need to relinquish your grasping hold on everything you have. Does that mean I have to become a monk and live in a monastery somewhere? No. It does mean that every day of your life you must live as if dead to the world and alive to God. It must mean that you have to be willing to leave in order to have Him. This is the teaching of Christ. And remember what He says in Matthew, I think chapter 18. No one has ever left father or mother or children or houses or lands that I have not repaid a hundredfold. For our Lord and Savior is a generous King. He is a faithful King. He does not take from us without giving back to us a hundredfold. And so we can take even this step of leaving in faith, knowing that He will go with us as we go. So as we approach this gate, of the kingdom of heaven. To the left, it says repent. To the right, it says leave. Straight ahead over the door, leading us in, it says follow. It says follow. Look, if you would, at verse 19. And he said to them, follow me. Follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. This is the first time of six times in Matthew's gospel that he is going to command us to follow him. This, this, is, a, this is a command that is saying to us that it's, it's not enough to simply stop, turn around, and look at Jesus. 
It's not enough just to stop, turn around, and admire Jesus. We must follow Jesus. We, and that the, it implies obedience. It implies surrender. It implies what was read uh, prophetically this morning from Matthew chapter 7, that we must hear. If we want to be like the wise man who builds his house on the rock, we must hear and do his words. It is a following of obedience. It's a following of surrender. It's a following of discipleship. He is our King. He is our Master. He is our Teacher. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our Sovereign. And we are His. And we're going to follow Him. No matter where He leads us. No matter what it costs. No matter what the sorrows. No matter what the pain. We're going to Follow Him. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The kingdom of heaven is the enthronement of Jesus Christ through which God is advancing light and truth in this world and retaking this planet for His glory. The kingdom of heaven dawned in the appearance of Christ. We get into that kingdom by repenting, leaving, and following. Simple question. Are you in the kingdom? Have you repented? Have you left? Are you following? Is that the path and direction of your life? Is that the kind of faith that you have exercised in Christ? And and if you are in the kingdom... Are you spreading the light? It's fascinating, isn't it, that with his early disciples, the first thing Jesus does is call them to spread the light. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He turned fishermen into fishers of men. He made them light bearers. He he made them kingdom ambassadors. And he does for all of us. And so as we come to finish this afternoon, it may be that the call to follow Christ is going to look different for each one of us. The the cost is going to be different, the specifics of it. The kingdom is the same in all its glory. The king is the same in all his beauty. But Christ will have a different path for each one of us. We must be willing to follow that path. This, this week as I was reflecting on this, it reminded me of a story in history that uh, I'm going to close with here this afternoon. It's a story taken out of the ancient uh, Roman Empire back in the 400s. story about an old believer named Telemachus. Some of the details of the story are lost to time, but the gist of it goes like this. Telemachus was a 4th century humble believer who spent most of his life in a remote community of prayer and solitude. And one day, for reasons we do not know, he went to Rome, the busiest, wealthiest, biggest, most corrupt city in the world. He arrived there during a holiday festival when the city was abuzz with excitement over the recent Roman victory over the Goths. 
Telemachus let the crowds carry him along, and the stream of humanity soon led him into the Colosseum, where the gladiator contests were held. No doubt he could hear the cries of the animals in their cages beneath the floor of the great arena and the clamor of the contestants preparing to do battle. The gladiators marched into the arena, saluted the emperor, and shouted, We who are about to die salute thee. And again, no doubt, Telemachus shuddered as he sensed the violence and death that was soon to occur. You see, the crowd had come to cheer men who, for no other reason than amusement, would murder each other. Human lives were taken for the purpose of entertainment. And as he realized what was going to happen, Telemachus knew he couldn't sit still and watch such savagery. Neither could he leave and forget. So he jumped out of his seat and jumped onto the perimeter wall and cried out, In the name of Christ, stop! The fighting began, of course. What did anyone care about his weak and hollow voice? But he wasn't silent and he didn't stop. With sudden courage, he jumped down into the arena to try to stop these muscular, armed, death-intending warriors. And he continued to cry out, In the name of Christ, stop! In the name of Christ, stop! And as soon as it became apparent that he was getting in the way, he was interfering with the crowd's enjoyment, the crowd turned hostile toward him. According to one report, the crowd cried out for the gladiators to kill him. According to another report, the crowd itself took up stones to stone him. Either way, a few minutes later, Telemachus lay dead on the Colosseum floor, quite possibly stabbed by a gladiator's sword and then buried beneath a hill of angry, mob-thrown stones. His words still echoing in the arena. In the name of Christ... Stop. No one knows exactly what happened next, but we do know this. That later, after the crowds had left and the noise had given way to complete silence, Telemachus lay dead on the arena floor, apparently with a mound of stones marking his martyrdom. And we know this. According to ancient records, while there were other factors involved that influenced the outcome, This courageous figure lying in a pool of blood underneath those stones crystallized the opposition to the gladiatorial games. And that was the last gladiator contest ever fought in the Roman Colosseum. Shortly thereafter, the emperor banned the fights from the realm in part because of what Telemachus had done. In the name of Christ... Stop. He was a man who repented, who left, and who followed Christ. Followed him all the way to his death. But in that death, and with that little voice of that little man, he shook an empire and changed the world. I don't know what our path is going to be. I do know this, the kingdom of heaven has dawned. And I do know that the light is spreading. 
And I do know that we're called to enter that kingdom and commit to that kingdom through repentance, through leaving, through following. And I do know that God wants the light of that kingdom to advance until it touches every single corner and nook and cranny of planet earth and until his kingdom reigns over all. And I know he wants us to be a part of that. And so we ask, we ask in earnest, are we in the kingdom? And are we living for the kingdom? Because we love the King, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, would you please write these things oh so deeply on our hearts. For if there's one thing we do not want, it is to hear your words and not believe them or do them. Spare us, Father, from shallow listening. Give us ears, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.